0: IndieCast is presented by UpRox's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week. We review albums, we hash out trends. In this episode we'll be revisiting a classic album turning 10 this month. Halcyon Digest by DeerHunter and then pivoting to a larger conversation about the evolution of the American indie rock band in the past 20 years. My name is Stephen Haydn, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? So,
1: I just, I just want to preface this episode by saying this is like the first push down a slippery slope of nostalgia for <laughs> fall 2010, which was easily the darkest period of my life, and... Um, I remember a lot of traveling for a job I hated, uh, like getting drunk at comedy <laughs> festivals in Des Moines, being in like hotel rooms, um, catastrophic breakups, losing that job, um, and also some of the most impactful music that I've ever heard. Uh, it seemed like a new classic album was coming out like every single week, and I guess it brings up the point that I think about a lot, particularly in 2020, where it's is like you know my life is much more stable it's uh, uh, do i need to experience these cataclysmic personal events to love music to the same degree i did you know 10 years ago or is it the music's fault like basically what i'm saying steve is that uh i do this podcast because i'm too cheap to pay for therapy
0: so i was gonna say that like this this show has really taken on like a confessional uh (laughs) edge for you i feel like there's Something that we learn about <laughs> your personal life in every episode, and I it, it's it's like a microphones record <laughs> this this podcast for you. You're like we're really digging yeah. <laughs> into the minutia of Ian Cohen and that's why I always ask at the top of every episode, how are you? because I feel like it you know normally people will just say fine or whatever you know they're not uh-huh. giving a real answer. You always give a real answer, and I feel like we're learning <laughs> about Ian Cohen, the enigma of Ian Cohen here.
1: Uh, am I an enigma? I, I feel I'm. Prim, I'm prim. <laughs> I feel like people who follow me on Twitter know me better than like most people do in my real life. But <laughs> that's something I probably need to look at.
0: <laughs> the title of your microphones-esque record will be yes. the Enigma of Ian Cohen. I think that should be the title of your debut. Uh, Outstanding. And it can get an eight from Pitchfork, but not a best in <laughs> music. Yeah,
1: I, I think that's. I, I think that's really the only uh, you know the only outcome that I would actually want. So I'd be the first person on Twitter to like be mad about getting best new music
0: That's true Yeah, maybe not getting best new music is the new best new music Exactly (laughs) So before we get into Halcyon Digest, let's give a little background on Deer Hunter Because I feel like, and this is going to be something we talk about in this episode That Deer Hunter, I think for a, a sliver really of a generation Not even a full generation, but maybe like a segment of a generation This I think is a very important band, but I wonder to what degree people older than that or younger than that really know about this band. So that's going to be something we talk about a little bit later on, but before we get to that, let's delve a little bit into the history of Deer Hunter. They're a band that they formed in Atlanta, Georgia in 2001 by Bradford Cox, the singer, guitar player, keyboardist, main songwriter, jack of all trades, and the drummer, Moses Archuleta. A few years later, they ended up inviting Cox's childhood friend Lockett Pund into the fold, and he ended up being, I guess, like the George Harrison figure in Deer Hunter, Mm -hmm. The, the secondary songwriter who I think provided a very important counterpoint and made this feel like a real band, which is something, again, we're going to talk about a little bit later on in this episode for me like the first i heard about deer hunter was in 2007 with their record cryptograms Mm. i'm sure i read about it on pitchfork i think it maybe like an (laughs) 8.1 or something um but they put out the fluorescent gray ep after that and then i think microcastle was the one where people really thought okay this is like a major major band um and i have to say like i've been listening to deer hunter uh this week in preparation for this episode um Microcastle Castle and Halcyon Digest very close for me. I go back and forth on which one I like more. I I might actually lean slightly toward Micro Castle, but they're both really great. I should also mention Weird Era Continued was another record that they put out in 2008. Sort of like the strange underbelly of the Deer mm-hmm. Hunter sound, as the title suggests. This is all of course building to Halcyon Digest which comes out again in 2010 and this ends up being you know I think the the high watermark in terms of their critical appeal I was going to say their uh, commercial appeal even though it's a still a pretty modest commercial appeal this was never like a huge selling band I don't know like where they peaked in terms of being a live attraction, I've always seen them. I think the biggest room I've ever seen them in was like a thousand people. I, I feel like I don't think they ever graduated the theaters, really. Mm. Unless I, I, I could be wrong. Depends about what you that. mean by theaters. Uh, yeah, I suppose I mean, like a small they, theater, maybe.
1: They, they, yeah, they played pretty decent rooms in Los Angeles. Like I, I saw them in the same place where I saw a Hum slash Mineral co headlining show, and also. <laughs> <laughs> where I saw like a show with like Say Anything, Modern Baseball and symbols Eat Guitars. So, I mean, okay. like popular, but like not the national or like, you know, outdoor amphitheater popular.
0: They're doing maybe like the 1,000 or 1,200 seat theater. They're not doing like the 3,000 seat theater. Exactly. In your town. Yeah. So, before I talk about how I feel about this record, I'm curious, like for you, Ian, what are your memories of Halcyon Digest? I mean, we know that at the time it was very critically acclaimed. I feel like in the short term... It was considered one of the great records of the decade. I, I think when Pitchfork did their mid-year, uh, I'm sorry, mid-decade list, it was number three, like of mm-hmm. the greatest records of the 2010s. What are your feelings about it then, and and how have they changed over the years?
1: Well, I think I have to set the scene for people who may not have been, um, you know, of age when Deer Hunter was first coming up, and. Actually, it's funny, like if you want to learn a a bit of Ian Cohen trivia, I used to work for this place called Georgia Lawyers for the Arts in 2006, um, like back in the day. And apparently, like I found out later that one of their uh, clients was like Deer Hunter in the turn it up days. So it's like I could (laughs) have met. Uh, I was mostly helping uh, people sue Little John for like apparently ripping off artwork or whatever, but that's neither here (laughs) nor there. Um, But Yeah. 2007 to 2009, the kind of lead up to Halcyon Digest. Um, I think it, I know sometimes this can feel like a Larry Fitzmaurice, like uh, tribute podcast, um, but he said, and I, I feel like I need to read this for Pete, to get, give people some context. He said last year, all you need to know about how music criticism has changed this decade is that Beyonce's Ford didn't even crack Pitchfork's top 20 of that year and was bested by an Atlas sound album that I regularly forget exists. Imagine that happening now um atlas sound of course being bradford cox's side project uh his side solo project but very
0: good side project by the way i'm a fan Excellent I'm, side
1: project yeah and by the way that album was parallax that he's talking about awesome record it's atlas that is palestine
0: digest but that's the that's the pinnacle of, <laughs> uh, of atlas sound right there
1: yeah and i think what what it's not what people might typically say of the you know, the time where music writing was oftentimes seen as like a fantasy baseball league that reviewed records. But <laughs> what, what, it, what it means is like it's hard to conceive at the current moment a point where Bradford Cox, like his every move was the center of the indie rock universe. Um, from 2007 to 2009, he was very prolific. And this was when I started writing a Pitchfork. Um, And he put out records like every single year, whether it was himself or Atlas Sound or sometimes two Deer Hunter records in a year. And if you kind of ascribe to indie rock being a certain like a certain form of indie rock coming like Kraut Rock, Shoegaze, like the cool stuff, in other words, um, Deer Hunter really stood for that. And Cryptograms is a record I it took me like initially I thought like this band's just a bunch of bullshit hype like it was one of the last of like the pitchfork bands where like that site was way 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 more enthusiastic about that band than like other places uh you don't kind of see that as like most publications are kind of in lockstep now but um well with micro with cryptograms a record i just i love that record more so than micro castle but that and weird era continued there was like this potential surrounding deer hunter where the guy was so prolific and cryptograms had, you know, seven minute interludes of like noise or instrumentals. The the midsection of uh microcastle went kind of ambient Atlas sound records were also very scattered. So he was kind of this hero in the sense of, okay, like he's making incredible records at this rapid clip, but They'll never be like an arcade fire or, or like a national. Like they'll never scale up like that because they're just too standoffish, too inaccessible. There's just something very counterintuitive about them. And then micro, and then Halcyon Digest happens, which is like their version of an arcade fire or a national album where every song tries to be the one. Um, there's no ambient filler. There's no instrumental. Sailing is, you know, uh, kind of the one song people, uh, you know, can fast forward through. But um, what, what shocked me was that it was kind of a validation of like everything that people were saying about Deer Hunter, where like he's an incredible songwriter uh just an incredible soundscaper and it was all put forth in this very accessible like this is our leveling up album like very obvious about it and so um it immediately drew me in because like it i just love event albums and deer hunter recognized that this was an event album and it completely paid off um they changed producers to have Ben Allen on there. He's the guy who did, um, in the previous year, uh, Meriwether Post Pavilion and he Washed Out album. So, this, as far as like a 2010 leveling up album, like this is the genuine article. And I think that it's earned every bit of praise. Um, like, what did you think about it at the time?
0: Yeah, I mean, everything that you're saying rings true. And I think if you listen to this show, this episode feels in a way like an extension of our Arcade Fire episode. Yeah. Especially in the sense of like there being a moment where indie rock bands felt that if they made a certain kind of record, like the level up record, I guess that you're talking about, that they actually could become like a big band. And I think that Deer Hunter did have those aspirations. They were certainly showing them on this record. And yeah, it wasn't outrageous at the time to think like, oh, a guy like Bradford Cox actually could you know, not be as famous as Beyonce, but like maybe (laughs) exist on the same plane. Like maybe Deer Hunter could go gold or, you know, they could end up being this like festival headliner. Um it didn't seem that outrageous at the time. Again, because of what you're saying, this momentum that they had uh, uh bubbling up in terms of their critical acclaim and also I think just their their creative energy. They were putting out like really great records that um felt a little unformed that you felt like I love this so much, but there's still other places that they can go and make it even better. And it felt like Healthy on Digest uh, was the realization of of those feelings that people had for Deer Hunter. I have to say too that like revisiting the record this week, I was pleasantly surprised. Maybe not surprised. Maybe I was relieved, I guess, to find that this record still is fantastic. Like I, I really think it holds up well. And what struck me about it is that. It didn't really feel like an indie rock record to me. It felt more like an alternative rock record that you remember from like the 80s or 90s. It had that feel to it, like a Violator by Depeche Mode or like a, <laughs> even like a Siamese Dream by by Smashing Pumpkins. Like the, the Records that not only have great songs, but they feel like a world onto themselves. Uh, there's an experience, I think, that you take when you listen to this record. It has like an epicness to it that I think, um, you know... You don't really associate with indie rock like of the 2010s or and certainly not after. And you, you mentioned Ben Allen before. You know, he worked on Weather Post Pavilion. He was definitely, I guess, a producer of the moment. This record sounds fantastic. I mean, like, oh, just awesome. sonically. <laughs> it, it it just like you want to listen to this on headphones. It just envelops you. Um, and, you know, even like the album cover, like it it's this like uh very sort of strange, alluring, but very seductive image which again that just reminded me of like those kind of classic alt rock records where you look at the cover and you're like wow like what is in this you know Mm -hmm. it um it just knowing bradford cox a little bit like i've interviewed him and and reading other pieces uh you know that he's been involved in it just seems like that must have been an ambition for him i think he was very aware of that lineage um but you know i think another noteworthy thing about this too that uh, we need to talk about is that, like, Deer Hunter, I think, pretty much fell off hard (laughs) after this record. Not so much creatively, because I really like Monomania. It came Uh out in 2013. That's a really good record. I think that was sort of a deliberate left turn away from the more sort of accessible uh, thing that they were doing on Halcyon Digest. But in terms of, like, their critical esteem and their reputation, it seems like they hit... A mountain known as 2013, and again, like, I keep referencing our previous episodes, but, you know, we talked about uh, a few episodes ago about how 2013 was like the beginning of this new generation of, of indie acts. You know, you've got Haim, Lord, 1975, other acts like that, and it was like... That coincided with Deer Hunter making a less commercial record, you know, changes in the larger sort of environment and Deer Hunter kind of deliberately kind of turning away from maybe the mainstream of indie. Um, and it seems like that's affected their legacy ever since then, wouldn't you say? Yeah,
1: yeah I mean, as far as like when I listened to Halcyon just now before like I get into Monomania, it, I think you alluded to like the completeness of it. Um, there were like zines with it as well. The album cover has a story behind it. Um, and it is that kind of record where you think about everything you could learn about indie rock, but just at a, like, just put in HD, like a much bigger scale. And that's how it's similar in a way to like, uh, Siamese dream or like Depeche mode that's coming from this left field sort of, uh, you know, roots, but just kind of blowing it up. And yeah, it just, it sounds amazing right now it's like a it's a they don't make this anymore they they don't make them like this anymore type of record like the sound of it i I actually tried to price an eventide pitch factor that's a 500 hundred dollar guitar pedal that helps you get the sound on earthquake and helicopter and uh he would have laughed um like that's the kind of record it is it 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 just has these it's a very indulgent album and i mean that in a great way where you just want to pick apart like how did he do that Uh, even with like basement scene where he records I think on a four track but the completeness the wholeness of Halcyon Digest made it uh, made Monomania a record like that like a logical step now we also have to point out the fact that even though uh, he put out an Atlas sound album that was really well received in 2011 Deer Hunter doesn't take three years to put out a record usually like it was Cryptograms in 07, uh, then fluorescent gray, then Microcastle and Weird Era. That was like all within two years, and then, as you say, 2013 happens with Monomania, which is um, a lot of people just given the fact that um, you know Bradford Cox writing from like a very queer perspective, being from Georgia, gets compared to REM a lot, um, and this was you know their monster, Monomania. It was right. it was louder, it was raw, it was kind of glammy um and it was it was pretty well received at the time like i remember i reviewed the uh fading frontier and monomania for pitchfork um and like i gave them like you know pretty positive reviews and they're like hey we want to give this best new music now i'm like okay sure twist my arm it's kind of the opposite of every emo album but uh like what happened was in those three years we talk about 2013 as being We talk about the bands that were rising and creating this new sort of image of indie rock we have to talk about the records that sort of signal the end i want to i think in 2012 centipede hurts like that is kind of that that was the end like animal collectives album um that was the first time it was like wait a minute these guys aren't leveling up they're actually making this weird dense record and i don't think i like it that much well that's another album
0: too that took three years for yeah. them to come. and that was another band that was like pretty prolific and absolutely and i think like in a way the fact that they took so long affected how people ultimately felt about them I, yeah. like monomania seems like a record that should have come out like pretty soon after halcyon digest you know it's like yeah. the it's like the dirtier follow-up you know like exactly what you mentioned uh monster i always think of like what green day did with insomniac you know like oh yeah after dookie wow. That idea For, of, like...
1: Great, great comparison. I yeah. never... The Green Day-Deer Hunter connection is now
0: uh, established. <laughs> well, I'm just saying, like, Green Day did what Deer Hunter should have done. Because, like, Green Day had... They had this big... I mean, Dookie, obviously. <laughs> Much bigger album yeah. than Halcyon Digest. But, like, they had bit. this huge hit. And then they're like, well, we got to kind of change the decks here a little bit. We're going to do, like, yeah. the fast... Hard fast like follow up right away and yeah Animal Collective and Deer Hunter they they took a long time and it I think in a way it almost it signals like like a panic maybe is it fair mm. to say like we're like we we have the heat on us now and we're not sure what to do I mean yeah th- it feels a little bit like that.
1: Also, we have to mention like only a year prior, like Deer Hunter still had enough juice where uh, Lock It Punt's uh, side project, Lotus Plaza, released a pretty well-received record, um,
0: Spooky Action at a Distance. Great record. Oh, man. Uh, Don't get me started uh, on Lotus (laughs) Plaza, man. Like that is probably, that might be like my third favorite record in the Deer Hunter universe. Like that. Yeah. uh, Right after Halcyon (laughs) and, and Micro Castle. I love that album.
1: Yeah, they still had juice in that way. But like Monomania, um, you you get the sense there. It's almost a little bit like Reflector as well, where it seemed like at the time, like Deer Hunter's reputation kind of outstripped what they put out. And I do think in a way they expected that album to be popular. Um, I recall people, you know, talking, uh, they interviewed Bradford Cox and like him being kind of disappointed at like the sales. And they really thought back to the middle was going to be like a hit. I mean, it could be a hit, but you know, not in 2013. And, um, this is where, yeah, the decks really started to shift. Cause like, if you, I think we're going to talk about this in a, in a bit about how, if you're not like of a certain sweet spot in terms of age, Uh, Deer Hunter might not have meant a heck of a lot to you. You know, Deer Hunter is going to be a band for a very specific uh, age group. And then by 2013, like the world had moved on Um, and Deer Hunter was still making good records. But you couldn't really say they're at the vanguard anymore. And I think in a way like we'll probably look back you know on the deer hunter legacy and like people there I guarantee there're going to be people who say Monomania is easily their best record like oh, yeah. that that is like that is a contrarian's choice I think it will I think it'll age well uh but at the time it, it you know it just signaled a decline not just for Deer Hunter but like for the era they represented um and uh, I mean when we talk about like I, I In 2013, there was, like, such a push to, like, really embrace, um, you know, pop, like, even in the form of, like, indie pop, that, like, even Deer Hunter releases a good, a very good, not, like, totally great record. It's kind of seen, well, this is, we need to push this aside, you know? It's kind of throwing out the baby with the bathwater of an era, an era of indie rock that, like, people wanted to put behind... I mean, for good reason. It was very exclusionary in a lot of ways.
0: Yeah, it's it's just amazing how there's these moments in time where you can really feel bands that aren't actually that old just seem old overnight. Like, yeah. Deer Hunter just seemed like they were of a different generation. And I feel like that was... I feel like you could tell that in the moment, even. Like, when we look back on it, it is, like, really obvious. But I think even mm. at the time there was something in the air where if you were really into that deer hunter record, which I was, I will say that unequivocally. And I still really like that record, monomania, but like, mm-hmm. you know, you weren't going to, uh, be mistaken for being at the vanguard of like critical thought at that time, if you were hyping the deer hunter record. And, you know, I, I tweeted this out earlier this week. I, where I said, just because I was talking about listening to Halcyon digest. And I, said you know i wonder if deer hunter is going to be remembered as like the ultimate old gen x uh oh, i'm sorry young gen x old millennial band essentially if you Thank were born you. <laughs> between 77 and 83 which i think we both were um yep. like you look at deer hunter in a certain way you i think you would be more likely to revere them if you were born in that time whereas if you were born later or born earlier than that You may not really care about Deer Hunter. And I should say that, like, I got some pushback from that uh, from people that were in college in the late aughts who were into indie indie rock, like, you know, from like, you know, college in like 2008, 2009, 2010, who were like, no, we really like Deer Hunter too. That was like a huge band for us. So that makes sense to me that if you were maybe in college at that time, you were a pitchfork reader, you would have been really into Deer Hunter. But um, one thing that really rang true to me, and this, I think, speaks to a point that you've made many times. It came from a Pitchfork editor, Andy Cush. He, he, he made the point that, like, in a way, Halcyon Digest should have come out in 2009 because it's more part of, I, I guess, the I guess that's true only in terms of, like, the critical narrative. But if Halcyon Digest had come out in 2009, it might be more remembered now just because it fits more with, what was going on in indie music at that time than it does really in the 2010s. Like it in a way it's like a little bit out of time in that regard. And it just reminds me of that point that you've made many times that like when we talk about decades, the decade should end with the zero year and begin with the one year. <laughs> that like two thousand ten should be part of the odds.
1: Yeah. Which in the is, same way like Kid A was like the end of the nineties to me. Right. Same with like Sigil Ross and Yeah, like 2001 to 2010, um, you know, you could kind of see that with the way Halcyon Digest, as you mentioned, like was very, very high in a lot of mid-decade lists and kind of fell as the years went on because, I mean, it's just so it feels so hard to like access a time when that was the, you know, the pinnacle of indie rock. I mean, I think about and also like I should, yeah, people in college, 2007, 2008, 2009, I can imagine Deer Hunter being huge. Like, I feel as if most of my in real life friends who follow music are the type of people who say, Oh, yeah, like I used to read Stereo Gum and Pitchfork in college. And then they kind of stop uh, just because their life goes on. And then, so they it's kind of frozen. It's like Deer Hunter might be the last band that they really were into. Um, I think about Deer, like, uh, the moment it kind of crystallized for me. Steve, have you ever, have you ever been to a Golden Voice Festival? You know, I don't think I... Well, wait, they do Coachella. And they, they do Coachella. Do, they do FYF. I think primarily Southern California.
0: Right. No, I don't... I've never been to Coachella. So, no, I've okay. not been to a Golden Voice festival. Well, well, Golden Voice, you know, their roots are in
1: punk rock and in Southern California. So with Coachella and like particularly FYF has became kind of a Coachella junior. Like they all like is as big as both of them became, they always throw a bone to like the 40 something indie rock people just to show their <laughs> like, this is how like, this is how you, like the weekend will be playing at the main stage at like 10 o'clock. And you could go see like swans or drive like Jehu in like a enormous tent play to like 50 people. Um and when I go to these festivals, like it seems like dear, it seems like Dinosaur Junior or like Yola Tango is playing every single time, and you know I'm amongst my fellow olds, for lack of a better term. You know, being 38 makes you an old at the time, and we thought like you know these bands were too kind of the vanguard of indie rock, like from 93 to 2000, like Painful to you know and then nothing turned itself inside out like yola like if you were following indie rock like yola tango was like the center like they were the coolest thing going and i think the same for dinosaur junior and then at a certain point they they still kept making great records but uh there's just that like kind of tipping point where they became like not like radiohead they became like a band for old folks and i would talk to my friends at these festivals and say like what kind of band right now is going to be this in like 10 years? And like the immediate answer is deer Hunter. I think in a lot of ways, like they might, you know, if festivals ever come again, uh, they might be that band that gets kind of thrown on just out of habit. And um, they'll still make great records, but I think that it'll be hard for people who weren't there at the time to really access like how this was the center of the universe. I think in a lot of ways their shape shifting nature like worked against them. Um, because when you think about like the bigger bands from bigger indie rock bands from that era, like the National or Arcade Fire or Fleet Foxes or Animal Collective, like you could tell when a band is sounding like them, they have right. these very specific uh signifiers. But like, how would you tell if a band was influenced by Deer Hunter? Uh, because Deer Hunter's sound is so slippery and I think that's one of the reasons that they kind of have f- faded even at a time where they're a, a new era of bands who were like yeah we, we we were inspired by the national or we were inspired by arcade fire it was it's 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 hard to see like Deer hunter kind of manifesting in modern bands or at least the kind of indie rock bands that like garner attention in in the current day maybe that'll happen in 10 years time but I I can't think of a band like where you would hear it's like, oh yeah, that's that is Deer Hunter influenced right there.
0: You know, I I was just thinking about your sort of I guess continuum of once cool bands that now become old people bands, which I think yeah. is a very like great point. You know, Dinosaur Jr., Yola Tango, and you know, putting Deer Hunter in that continuum. I don't think you can underestimate the degree to which how certain bands become written about in a particular era. Like wow. as these, you know, I guess, paragons of artistic integrity or paragons of cool, however you want to put it, and like how that ends up alienating like the generation that comes after, you know, like like the kids. <laughs> oh, who there's read a, there's the, like a five part episode about that, oh yeah, man, because, <laughs> I think that that happens over and over again. It's like the kids who like read rock critics, you know, re- writing about like the greatness of a particular band that maybe that they tried to get into at some point, and they just felt like. I'm not connecting with this. It almost becomes, I think, like a point of resentment for people of that generation where they're like, I am not only not going to like this, I'm going to like reject what this like represents. And I'm going to maybe even go in the opposite direction. Yeah. In a lot of
1: ways, resentment is like the fuel of the music critic narrative. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) It's it's the thing that keeps it going. Like kill your idols on – i mean it happened like i saw it happen myself with like when you know we upended deer hoof and Devendra banhart it's like you know what the hell with this stuff like we you know and, and it'll happen again like i think that's what oftentimes gets lost in conversations about the future of you know music writing or indie rock in general yeah like what's there's a band right now that is going to be deer hunter which you know that's a great place to be but um yeah, it, it, you're going to look back on 2019 or 2020. It's like, really? Yeah. Yes. Okay, must have. Yeah, I guess you had
0: to be there. <laughs> I mean, that's like the nice flip side. You know, if you're a band out there and you feel like, okay, we're not getting the respect we deserve or we're not even being being reviewed. There is an upside to that sometimes historically, like where uh, if you aren't over covered in the moment, it allows people of like future generations to rediscover you or to like feel like. There's room for you in their narrative that it hasn't just been overcrowded with with all these music critics, you know, (laughs) writing, uh, you know, very flowery think pieces about your brilliance, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, But yeah, I I always love playing that game in my mind about like, okay, what critically adored thing right now is going to irritate the kids (laughs) that when they grow up, they're going to like want to do something totally different from that, you know? And I think that's that's great because like, yeah, like... As much as, like, you know, we might want to think that, like, the list or the canon or whatever it is that we've created right now in the moment is is going to be the last one, you know, this yeah. is the correct one, it never is. Someone comes along and they turn it over, and that's great. That's the way it should be. Um, mm-hmm. But one thing I want to talk about here, too, kind of pivoting away from Deer Hunter is just, like, the evolution of, like, I'm going to say American indie rock bands it's I want to make it more specific because I think Deer Hunter, to me, they represented a certain archetype of an, of an American indie rock band that I wonder, like, not that there will never be another band like that. I, I think there's bands today that you could maybe liken to Deer Hunter, but it does seem like in the past 20 years, like the way that we conceptualize bands has clearly changed pretty dramatically. Like if you look at like the early aughts, the age of the Strokes, Yeah Yeah Yeah's, Interpol, and then You you mentioned the National earlier. They were a part of that as well. There was still this idea that a band should be, you know, every member being an important contributor. They're in all the band photos. You know, there's this idea that uh, if it's not like a strict democracy, at least it's uh, everyone contributing like a communal type vibe to it. And I think Deer Hunter did have that. We've talked about, I think, Lockett Punt being like the, I think, most crucial counterbalance to Bradford Cox in this band. I can't believe you have gone this long in a Halcyon just episode and not mentioned desire lines, which is yeah. like, I think, the great Deer Hunter song and it's I think by... it's
1: overrated. Oh. I, I I I just can't what? get down with it. I think it's I, I just can't understand how that's become the one. Oh my god. Like I like it, but I, I, I just can't understand like how that's been the one that people have
0: rallied around. We've... To me we, uh, we, we I, just, I, I i we just I drove it. this episode into a ditch, right? Yeah I, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's cool I've heard other people say that, yeah. and I understand it, but I do not agree. but like what like what would be your like number one deer hunter? Track? I mean, nothing ever happened is to me wow, the definitive.
1: yeah, that, that's a great So yeah, it's kind of similar, but like that's the song when i've last time I think I saw a deer hunter uh in 2015 at that you know at that at that play at that theater in los angeles they played nothing ever happens for like 20 minutes right like this was the point where they were like just that was like their thing it's like we're gonna play nothing ever happens for 20 minutes i'd also put helicopter up there as being kind of definitive um he would have
0: laughed i was gonna say you have to
1: pick a bradford song you know
0: i was gonna say he would have laughed um along with nothing ever happened those would be my like right after Desire Lines. It just turns like my favorite songs. because uh, and I've heard a lot of people like when I was talking about Halcyon Digest on Twitter this week, many people I think rightly pointed to He Would have Laughed as like one of the great album closers. Certainly of, like the last, you know, couple decades. And I, I would agree with that. Um but anyway, going back to, you know, talking about American bands, you know, I would say, especially like in the last ten years And I think we've talked about this in other episodes, but, like, it feels more and more now that bands aren't really bands. It's, like, one person who started the band and maybe ended up putting, like, their early records on Bandcamp, and then they end up becoming successful, and then they have to recruit a band to tour, essentially. Like, Mm -hmm. that's the story of... Car seat headrest, story of snail mail. I think there's like lots of other examples. Then you have also something like The War on Drugs, who, if you yeah. don't know this, I am a fan of the War on Drugs. I like the <laughs> War on Drugs a lot. But like I think, you know, you look at them, and uh obviously Adam is the focal point of that band. He's an often he's the only guy in their press photos. He's on their album covers. Um, in a way, they're almost like Wilco to me, also because the other constant member is Dave Hartley, the bass player, just like in Wilco, John Sterrett is the only other guy who's been in every lineup along with Jeff Tweedy. Anyway, I'm curious for your thoughts on this. I mean, are we over the age of bands at this point? Are we over this thing that like bands actually mean something important? Because I feel like part of this was always that even if it was just one person, like a Billy Corgan or something, like, an auteur who's in charge of everything, it was still important, like, symbolically, to have this sort of band facade because that meant something to people. And I, I it feels like maybe we're over that now. <laughs> Are we, though? I
1: mean, I, I think in a way that's kind of where things have shifted uh, towards. I do think that... Um, I mean, look at it. like how it, it's hard enough for two of us to do a podcast together. <laughs> like, think about what it's like to be in a band. Like right. Four people like in that van every night, making no money, and um, it, being in a band is just a super hard thing to do. And particularly uh, when you think about how uh, people's interests have shifted now. Like, you let's suppose you know you want to do. Uh, an indie rock song or maybe like an electronic type song or uh, you know it's just easier to do it on Bandcamp and figure out the rest later um, you know even it's weird because when we talk about like I mean the 1975 that's a band um, you know the, that's in a weird way they're like the most modern they're the most modern of indie rock acts but like you know the drummer George Daniel like he's still very much a contributing member like even if you can't name the other people I think one of the things that appeals about them is that they are a band. They're all in the press photos. Maddie's the guy who says all, does all the quotes. Um, But I think bands are important for a certain style of music. Like as someone who, you know, similar to the Steve likes the war on drugs, I tend to like emo. Uh, And a lot of the greatest artists in that realm tend to be bands. You know, like Foxing, that's a band. The world is a beautiful place and I'm no longer afraid to die. The lineup shifts constantly. Like, I think one person who ma- was on the uh, original record is still in the band, but you know, they're a collective. Joyce Manor, that's a band, even though Barry's like the guy who uh, is seen as the forefront. Um, and also, those bands tend to break up pretty quickly. Uh, so, I-, I think that if you're going to be in a project that uh, has a short shelf life, yeah, I think that's important. But now that, like, live uh live music has been completely taken off the table uh it's even less important to present as a band um you know that would like i've seen so many of the bands that you've mentioned uh ones that have become like band camp uh successes putting like a touring act together like the early shows those are rough man uh they eventually you know get to a point where things are solidified but um you can kind of skip that point right now and um i think that there is still a craving for bands i honestly like i think if you want to look at the band that is most similar in terms of trajectory to deer hunter you gotta look at big thief also a band on 4ad also very prolific also a very strong uh focus at, at on the mic but everything about big thief like they put themselves like we are a band we're all on the photo together right we there's a lot of musical interplay and so and i think that specifically uh appeals to people in a throwback sort of way i think black midi last year people kind of i think that was a throwback sort of buzz band as well that it's like oh cool it's like four british looking and they look like they're in a gang um It's like this is appealing to me on a visceral level. So I don't think that they've become completely irrelevant. I just think that uh, it's so hard to be in a band. Yeah, I (laughs) think.
0: Yeah, for all the reasons that you said. I mean, and also. I think it's hard to market a band i think it's easier to have one person in the press photo than than four people and and you know even in a band like big thief you know adrian linker is definitely the focal point of that band and she's been putting out solo records as much as big thief records lately and i'm curious to see how that evolves over the years you know I, i guess in the same way that you know bradford cox was putting out atlas sound records Adrienne Linker is doing that with her own records. She needs to have some sort of like cool solo moniker, though. You know, she's like, <laughs> she's her own Atlas sound, I think. But yeah, you're right. It, and yeah, the, uh, the Black MIDI example, I think, is really interesting because I think there was an element to the excitement around that band that was very sort of. It reminded me of like early aughts talking about oh, yeah. it, like strokes type <laughs> bands, you know, that this was like, even though they were very much not like that musically. I mean, they were, they're like this proggy, mathy, just crazy sounding band. Which um, is
1: itself like early aughts if you're thinking about things like Deer Hoof or like Lightning Bolt, like which was also big
0: at the time. That's true. But yeah, I, I, I just wonder, you know, I, I think more and more that bands are going to be like the War on Drugs or to name a non-American example, Tame Impala. Uh, Kevin mm-hmm. Parker, I think, really being, I think, maybe the definitive example of this because, you know, he starts the decade in the 2010s making this, uh, I think great, but you know, you can, you can call that psych rock essentially, which is very much a sub genre, very rare for a band to break out of that ghetto, you know, and they exploded out of there. But now you look at him and because he doesn't have the band identity, he can go and, you know, do songs with, uh, uh, Travis Scott. Travis Scott. <laughs> or I was trying to think of the dude, the producer that did uh uh that worked with Bruno Mark Ronson. Mars Mark Ronson. Mark, yeah. Mark Ronson, I apologize. I've interviewed you, Mark Ronson. I couldn't remember you. Uh you if look, you're listening, Mark Ronson, we apologize I gotta say too, Mark Ronson uh looks a lot like my former editor and friend Sean Fantasy. <laughs> and I remember Sean assigned me that story on Mark Ronson, and I was like, wow, I'm like writing about Mark Ronson and my editor looks like Mark Ronson. If Sean is listening, <laughs> hopefully he takes that as a compliment. You know, both good looking guys. Uh but anyway, um, you know, he can go in these different arenas very easily. It's, he could be very fluid and then he can go back and do tame and It seems like in mm-hmm. a way, uh, you know, as much as I love bands and I want to see them see them continue, like it is liberating in a way, I think, to break out of that structure in the way yeah. that he has.
1: I think what also you have to mention the the irony, which it just dawned on me, is like when you think about like Bradford Cox and Atlas Sound in two thousand nine, two thousand ten, like early two thousand tens, like it felt like seventy five percent of my inbox sounded like Atlas Sound, like a guy, like you, it was kind of proto Chill Wave in a way, Um, and like it. I think Atlas Sound became more influential than Deer Hunter as far as pointing where the next decade would go. And also, here's a point that doesn't get brought up enough. Bradford Cox, when he performs his Atlas Sound, chances are it's solo. So he can get all – like the entire booking fee goes to him Um, and – I've seen I've seen shows where Atlas Sound opens up for Deer Hunter. So just imagine the double dipping that goes on right there. Like it's a very savvy, it's a very savvy business move.
0: Well, good on Bradford Cox for finding a good loophole there. I'm glad he could get paid, you know, however he's getting paid. But uh yeah, just to wrap this up, I feel like again, we loved Halcyon Digest at in the moment. And I do feel like this is a record that 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 holds up from that era, which you can't say about every you know, signpost indie rock classic from the 2010s or, you know, 09 or, or, you know, that whole mm-hmm. sort of, I guess, end of the aughts period. Um, I really feel like, you know, in the moment I felt Halcyon Digest was one of the best of those records from that time. And I think I still feel that way. It really holds up for me.
1: I like it more than when I first heard it. Um, I, I'm really interested in seeing like how it's cause you know, it's about to turn 10 uh, the ten year anniversary cottage industry is going to be very rife with this one. And um, I-, I honestly think a lot of people who are writing about it were probably from that era and will talk about it in the same sort of nostalgic way that we do. I would love to hear what like a twenty-two year old, uh, you know, hearing Halcyon Digest for the first time might think of it. Someone who is into indie rock but perhaps didn't like grow up, you know, with Deer Hunter being like the North Star. Um, I, I, I honestly like it more. Uh, maybe it's just me being stubborn <laughs> of like wanting more records like *Halcyon Digest* rather than like embracing what's new. Uh, I, but I, I just hope it doesn't get kind of lost in the sands of time. as this totem of yeah? Uh, uh, of a scene of indie rock that a lot of people want to forget you know
0: i mean my suspicion is that that record would hold up better for a 22 year old than other records of that time just because i feel like when i hear younger people complain about aughts era indie especially like late aughts Mm. they're complaining about like the theatricality of some of it the preciousness of some of it like the sort of artiness of it that Mm. And I say this as a person who still loves a lot of those records, but I think that for just say dirty projectors, Steve. Well yeah you know, well I wasn't just talking about them, but you know, know but there's a lot of other bands that kind of fall, I think under that umbrella that I still really enjoy. but I understand when someone comes to that after the fact and feels that me it's a little too much, maybe. yeah. Um, and I don't think that Deer Hunter though really has any of those attributes. I think it's something different and in a way might be more approachable for people Mm -hmm. buy low on deer hunter guys those of you who are looking (laughs) (laughs) absolutely all right now we've reached the part of the show that we call recommendation corner where ian and i recommend something that we're into this week ian what is your recommendation all right, so
1: I'm going to bring up the new Lomelda record called Hannah. Now, if you you know kind of follow the indie scuttlebutt of the times, like this is probably not an under the radar record. But if you don't, then it probably is. And also, you know, a few weeks ago, Steve talked about a Bill Callahan record, so I think this one's fair game.
0: Yeah, we don't uh, need you so- know. Look, these <laughs> are people who are just listening to our show. We're the only yeah. music critics that they listen to the only ones that they need to listen to. So they (laughs) they probably don't know about the Lomelda record. Exactly.
1: So, um, and that's why I feel comfortable bringing it up. So Lomelda's music, um, in kind of a Big Thief sort of way, it like presents a little bit as folky, even though it isn't folk. Um, I've seen her perform quite a few times, like in that axis of, I think I've seen her open for Alex G or maybe it was Pine Grove or Japanese Breakfast. Um, It's kind of in that realm of, Maybe start like some unnecessary controversy here by mentioning, like, you know, Double Double Whammy and Exploding in Sound, those labels that are kind of adjacent to a lot of the bands I like, but I don't always connect with those bands the way my peers do because I think there's it's kind of music where it was like they had an emo phase two years ago, they're really embarrassed about now, and now they're kind of like went to college and got into pavement or things like that. But Lomelda is someone who I've, you know, I've connected with to a fair degree. Like she puts out records at a pretty regular pace, and every time I listen to them, I'm like driving to work on a Friday when the record gets released, and it's this very, like, thoughtful, beautiful music that makes me just want to like lie out in a field instead of going to work. It like makes me think of like maybe what my early twenties would have been like if I went to an expensive, like, private college in like the Northeast um but i don't think she's ever like put out a record that's really hit me from front to back quite like this new one does um even though like it was recorded in texas uh and she's a texan it it has this very much kind of autumnal like upstate new york kind of feel to me um and it's it's an interrogation of like kind of what it means to be an artist a lot of the songs are named after herself um there's one song with a chorus where it just like mentions low yola tango frank Cosmo, frankie cosmos and frank ocean um and it's it's a record that really snuck up on me um where i think like at a time where like i'm listening to music less and less this one's like more of like a balm you know b-a-l-m not like b-o-m-b um (laughs) where I, i like wake up in the morning i'm like huh like i why, this song is in my head. Oh, now this one's in my head as well. And it kind of gets under your skin like that. And I think kind of easing into, um, you know, fall and also at a time when uh you just kind of want to be a little bit like calmer, more serene, but like at the same time, not completely like twee. This record is just, it really threads a very thin needle for me. So um I think this is you know her best it's, it's a very strong catalog but this is the one where i think that she kind of levels up and um you know makes a record where i can point to this like for people who aren't necessarily following like howdy or bands from that point, it's like here you can have this i think it doesn't require any sort of backstory this is a good record
0: I'm with you. I like this record a lot. I've been li- with Lamelda for a few years here. I was actually supposed to interview her a couple years ago at South by Southwest, and uh, <laughs> she didn't show up. Wow. She didn't show up. So, but that's okay. I understand a lot of things going on. I didn't want to be at South by Southwest either. So, you know, uh, it's an understandable thing. <laughs> but anyway, this is a good record. Definitely get into it. Uh, what I'm going to recommend is actually a book that doesn't come out until October, but I read it this week, so it's front of mind, and, and I'm an author, so I always like to encourage people to pre-order books, because it's good uh, for a book if you pre- if you can pre-order it, even though this guy really doesn't need my help, I don't think. It's, uh, How to Write One Song is the name of the book, and it's by a guy named Jeff Tweedy, who you might have heard of. This is his second book. He wrote a memoir that was very well-received called Let's Go So We Can Get Back, this book, though, is different. It's not a memoir so much. It's, in a way, it's like a self help book. If I can describe it that way, huh. it's a self help book that posits songwriting as a way to improve your life. Because uh, I know, like for me, when I think about songwriting, it's this very mystical process. When you often talk to songwriters, they often don't want to analyze how they write songs because they say that there's some sort of like conduit from God that they're just like channeling music and it just comes out. <laughs> That's honestly something that a lot of musicians say. Uh, but the great thing about this, this book, how to write one song is that Tweedy basically demystifies the songwriting process and breaks down his own process, gives advice on how to write lyrics, how to approach, uh, you know, words in a different kind of way, how to like record yourself, you know, the best way to, uh, really just to get started as a songwriter. Even if you're someone who's like not a professional musician, if you're someone who just like wants to be creative. Um, because I think essentially the idea of the book is that creating things is good, even if they're bad, (laughs) even if you write a bad song, the process of discovery that takes place when you're able to create something in the moment, uh, is one of the best things about being alive. And when I say that, it maybe sounds hokey. But like when you read the book and coming from someone like Jeff Tweedy, it actually does really resonate. And um, I really enjoyed the book. And I think that if you're curious about songwriting, even if you don't want to write songs, but you're just curious about like how people go about putting songs together, um, it's a really fascinating read. So again, this book, I think it comes out October 13th. But you can pre-order it now. It's called "How to Write One Song."
1: Yeah, I would. I want to buy this book. Um, in quarantine, I've like gotten a lot more into just like messing around on like Logic and, and uh, GarageBand, and yeah, I, c- I could use some pointers from Jeff Tweedy, and I think it would be a good counterbalance to like a lot of the records I listen to, where they talk about like how being in a band is absolutely miserable. So yeah, I we. In, in conclusion, IndieCast is a land of contrasts.
0: <laughs> what well, I was going to say, too, Like, I've written three songs myself since re- <laughs> uh, reading this book. And I think at some point, you and I should share our songs on this <laughs> oh show. Oh, my God. We should put ourselves in the vulnerable position since we've always been judging other people uh for making music we should okay so we have a talent show an indie indie cast talent show we'll drop our so here's
1: what here's what i'm gonna do i'm gonna like you said at the top i'm going to take the raw audio from this and just put it over like some loop shoegaze type stuff like in logic where i just use all of my plugins and i'm gonna make my microphones in 2020 except (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's going, whatever you call it like uh, the enigma that is ian cohen like you heard it here first you, this is this is the raw material you are hearing the 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 future bonus tracks and demos
0: well i hope you're part, you're part of history right now i I'm hope just that someone starts a podcast where they review the art that's created on adcast you know like, when we do our indie cast talent show at some point yeah. Someone needs to do a podcast and they can like just give us the business about how <laughs> terrible our art is. I can't wait for that to happen. Uh, but until that happens, we have to leave you this week. I, we hope you enjoyed this episode, but we'll be back with more reviews and news and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box. Peace.